Hello, and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America, or, as I think I uh, kind of like to refer to this program, Truth Be Told. Why? Well, what if St. Paul were alive today and wrote a letter to us here in America? He would tell us things that were and are true. They're always true. They don't, they don't change. They don't change with uh, a decade, a century. They don't change from place to place. They are true. Today, many people don't even believe there is such a thing as truth. And that actually is going to be something we're going to talk about quite a bit on this program today. But many people don't believe that there's such a thing as truth. They may say the truth is fluid. They may say that truth needs to be in the moment. Um, so how can we know if there is any truth? And if there is truth, how are we going to know it when we bump into it? Well, there are a couple of ways. One is to use our own reason to examine and ask what makes sense. Another is to look at what produces good results. We'll know something by the, the fruit it produces, what makes us feel at peace, for example. And that is what we do here today. Uh, by the way, this program is being brought to you in conjunction with St. Joseph Radio and the St. Joseph Evangelization Network, who kindly lend us their studios to record this podcast. So what are we going to be talking about? Oh, a little small, uh, small item. It's a little back page item. Maybe you've heard about it. It's called Uvalde, Texas. And in Uvalde, Texas, a nice little peaceful community, uh, their world was rocked not too long ago. An 18-year-old boy, 18 years old, his whole life in front of him, felt compelled somehow, or justified, whatever, uh, to go into a school which he was not attending, a school where there were little children, eight years old, 10 years old. And he walked into that school armed with guns and told these little children, told them, you are going to die. And he killed 19 of them and two teachers. That was evil, is it not? What would possess somebody to go into a school with little children and tell them you were going to die? Why would you want, why would you ever want, not just to say that, but to actually do it? This, or What would possess you to just even say it? I mean, the cruelty is unimaginable. Why would anybody want to be so cruel? You might say, that's evil. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't know about this particular person. I don't know much about him. Even now, I'm not going to say he's an evil person. He did a horribly evil thing. But to think that maybe that person... Well, if he, hadn't, if he hadn't died, I mean, could he possibly have been redeemed? Of course he could have. So, you know, and, and certainly, you know, he wasn't always like this. Earlier parts of his life, perhaps he was a happy child. I don't know. But no one comes into this world that cruel by nature. Uh, something turned him, something warped him. So he did a horribly evil thing. Can we agree on that? No, there are some people who don't agree with that. 
For example, an uh, article appeared in the New York Times recently written by a man who is an assistant professor of New, the New Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois. The title of his piece, Don't Blame Violence on Evil. Um, you've got a fellow, he's a, uh, you've got another uh, philosopher. This guy uh, is a professor at, uh, associate professor at the uh, philosophy at Wesleyan University. And he says similarly, blaming evil for mass violence isn't as simple as it seems. And what he goes on to, to say, for example, is, uh, well, he asked this question. He starts out his, his article um, saying, um, what exactly does evil mean? He's asking the question, what does evil mean? Do you not, can we not all agree? No, we can't all agree. And that's perhaps maybe the saddest commentary of all. But anyways, what exactly does evil mean? And he says, you know, to those people, those so-called religious people who say, well, of course, you know, we, I can tell you what evil means. Well, that's just because you're not interested in a shared understanding. These people have an overabundance of confidence and, um, well, you might say hubris. Um, and uh, he goes on to then analyze, well, there's two kinds of evil. There's inner evil and there's outer evil. There's the kind of inner evil that exists in your heart. And then there's the outer evil that exists in the world. And then he goes on to say, well, Christian thinkers believe in one kind but not the other, which, of course, is wrong. It completely misunderstands Christian teaching. He likens what he calls outer evil to atrocities in the world. He gives as examples tsunamis and earthquakes, things that don't have any real intention behind them. There's no puppeteer that's, uh, you know, uh, that's saying, hey, right, I'm going to send a tsunami to this particular part of the world because I want to do an evil thing. Now, there's, there's no actor that does that. So that's not an example of what I would say would be worldly evil. What, what would be evil out in the world? Evil that's outside of you, not just simply inside the human heart. Well, we've always had a word for that. There is evil in the world. It moves about. Um, Pope Leo XIII composed a prayer to St. Michael, asking him to rid this world of all the demons who prowl about the world looking for the ruin of souls. That's the evil that's out in the world. But then, of course, there are many people who don't believe in the devil. Anyways, uh, this, uh, this professor uh, goes on to say that you know, hey, most people today would reject both of the simple notions. There's a simple, no there's the old ancient, uh, you know, Greek notion that there's evil uh, in the world and that it, you know, has no, I guess, real personal cause. And then there's this Christian view that it's the only evil that exists is in your heart, which I said, which, as I say, is a misstatement of Christian thought, but nevertheless. But uh, so there's this, you know, one group in antiquity that thought it was in the outer world and then... Uh, you know, there's the Christian view that holds that it's inside people. And uh, this professor says, well, most people today would reject both. We focus instead on the connection of inner and outer, where human choices result in real-world atrocities. So he's taken this, this higher vantage point as if this is the better way, um, which, of course, is really interesting because then he— proceeds to uh, have an overabundance of confidence himself later on, but we'll, we'll get to that. 
He says the better view uh, with regard to evil is for people to work together in what he calls a shared moral community to determine what is right and wrong. We're going to decide and we're going to, I guess, democratically come to some kind of consensus as to what is right and what is wrong um, so that society as a whole can you know, help to, I guess, deal with what is inside the hearts of each individual. And that um, when you say that there's evil, as Christians do, and this is, this is how he criticizes the Christians, he says, you imply that people are beyond redemption. If you say that someone is evil, which of course we don't say, but if you say, for example, someone is evil, like the shooter in Uvalde, then you're implying that person is beyond redemption. And that's, that's wrong. But then he says, in the same paragraph that he says that, interestingly enough, he says, you know, people, some people do seem to lack the social bonds, skills, and attitudes required for participating in this shared moral community. They're not interested in what other people have to say about what is right and wrong. And that's where he leaves it. That's where he leaves it. Some people don't have the tools to participate in this as if they are beyond redemption. And of course, here he, he, he contradicts himself again. He criticizes Christians because he says they believe people are re beyond redemption. And again, he misstates Christianity because we don't believe anybody is ever beyond redemption as long as they have a breath in them. Uh, St. John Vianney tells a famous story about a guy who commits suicide and on the way, and he's, he jumps off a bridge and as he's falling, he utters some very short, simple prayer and St. John Vianney, you know, told his, his uh, distressed wife afterwards, his distressed widow afterwards, no, he was saved. We don't believe anybody, as long as you have one moment of life in you, we don't believe anybody is beyond redemption. But the whole upshot of this article that this guy writes is to criticize people who believe in evil. Um, and, um, uh, and even though he agrees that there is evil in people's hearts, so there's some evil in the world. But he denies then that people have hope, denies people have redemption. And in the end, he offers no answers how to deal with this. So that's terrific. What is evil? Doesn't really believe in the Christian view of it, but has no answers to give us. Uh, then you take another guy uh, who writes a piece, Good or Evil, Who Decides? Does Evil Really Exist? Uh, he's a sociologist and a criminologist. Um, and he believes in the writings of Immanuel Kant, and uh, believes that evil, and he, the reason why he believes in the writings of Immanuel Kant is Kant was a guy, a philosopher, who thought that really everything is subjective. There is no objective truth. Everything is really up to us to decide. Anyways, this guy's a follower of Kant, and he says uh, that evil is a socially created concept. It does not exist as any kind of independent reality. It is not if you will, truth. Um, so anyways, uh, so then he, uh, he contends that all definitions of evil are socially constructed, and there you go. Now, one of my favorite, um, uh, so, so, so if, all, if evil is a socially constructed concept, then it doesn't really exist, so people aren't really evil, and so evil is not something we really have to, I guess, worry about. Then you take a guy like uh, Peter Kreft, who's one of my favorite Catholic uh, scholars, theologians. And he says that Kant, this philosopher, uh, the uh, uh, 
this, this criminologist uh, seemed to uh, favor so much. He said he was the primary source of the idea that today imperils faith more than, more than any other, namely that fact truth is subjective. He says about Kant that um, the philosophy of Kant is a perfect philosophy for hell. Why does he say that? Well, because if you believe everything's subjective, you don't believe in evil. And then you're maybe likely to do it. You know, maybe, you know, you'll, well, if you believe in that kind of philosophy, you're helping yourself on the way to eternal damnation. Um, you know, um, you know, um, Kant, basically, Kant basically said that, uh, as, as Mr. Kreff points out, that if the moral law came from God, we would not be free. If the moral law came from God, we would not be free. Therefore, if we're going to be autonomous and free human beings, um, we are the ones who decide what the moral law is. Well, Mr. Kreff points out, well, no, um, Christians do believe that a moral law comes from God at the same time that we do believe people are free. Well, how can that be? Well, it's very easy. We're free to choose to obey or disobey that law. We're not free to choose what the law is. If we are free to choose what the law is, that brings in a whole new realm of bad possibilities. Um, if there's no truth, if there's no true morality, maybe we'll end up deciding bad things are good. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe we'll decide killing unborn children is, is perfectly fine and it's morally justified. All kinds of other things come from that. Um, I'll give you another example. There is a, uh, a blogger who wrote, she doesn't give a, a philosophical view, she gives a personal one. And uh, she was an 18-year-old kid on September 11th, 2001, uh, when the Twin Towers were struck and destroyed by terrorists. And she wondered why. She thought it was evil, couldn't understand why anybody would want to kill 3,000 people just going to work on a normal day. Um, and she thought they were evil. It must have been evil. And that made sense to her, and she didn't have to worry about it anymore. Um, but then she read a book in 2007, and it was called The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. And as she read this book, she read the personal stories of the terrorists. And she found that they grew up in a poor country and had economic hardships. And she put myself in the shoes of the terrorists and wondered, if presented with the same challenges, would I respond the same way? And she concludes that maybe, she says, maybe I would. She said that this, was, this is all just um, expressions of pain and fear, that they were living in pain and fear, and they were just lashing out uh, because of it. And she said, once she saw these terrorists from that vantage point, she couldn't unsee it that way. There was no more good or evil, she says, for her. People just go about the world responding to their own pains and fears. She would never do this, and she's lived her life without doing anything similar, but she says, I just made different choices. Is that really all there is to it? Is that really all there is to it? You just made different choices. Why did you make different choices? Just because? I can't be that simple. She says, 
If you are indeed truly, truly tired of the hatred in this world, then stop trying to fight it because it will never work. So try to be sympathetic towards people who commit evil. Well, being sympathetic towards other people is a fine thing. But what do you say? That's a, that's a prescription that she offers to the people who would judge terrorists and people like the shooter in Uvalde. But what does she say to the terrorists and the shooter in Uvalde? Does she have an answer for them? What is it? Well, you're just responding to your pain and fear. Is that really going to help them not to do what they did? Or is it going to maybe feel, make them feel more justified, more emboldened? So that doesn't seem like it's the answer. Then, for example, we could take, uh, take uh, the answer given to us by neuroscience. And there's one, uh, a neuroscience, of course, studying the, the brain and how it works biochemically and such. And there's a professor, a British professor of psychopathology called Simon Baron Cohen. He wrote The Science of Evil. And he explains that the reason that there's evil in the world is because some people don't have a good enough empathy circuit. There's that part of the brain that's not developed to sympathize with other people enough. He says it's like, quote, a chip in their neural computer is missing, close quote. And that's all it is. That's all it is. They just have a part of their brain that's not functioning right. Well, if that's the case, and evil people do evil things, not because it's not their fault, well, then there's no more good in the world either, is there? Um, if evil is not your fault, then if you do something that we would call good, it's not to your credit. Maybe you just have a computer chip in your brain that's that, was, that you were born with, and it was a little different. And that's all it is. So now we don't have, now not, do we not only have no evil, now we have no good. Um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a professor of ethics at Harvard University called Jonathan Marks. And um, he criticized neuroscience for their misuse of F. MRIs and these, these brain studies. But anyways, um, he suggested, when asked if there really was evil, he suggested, well, you know, we ought to act as if we had free will to choose between good and evil. So even if we can't say for sure if there's such a thing as good or evil, or if we have the free will to choose between them, it's probably better if we just go ahead and act as if we believe that sort of thing. All these answers, you know, strike you as maybe not being, I don't know, so totally satisfactory. They well, to me, it leaves, it leaves a great feeling, Ray, uh, a large feeling of nothing can be done wrong. I'm not responsible for anything, right? Um, I, I don't have to do anything because this is all pre-programmed like it's a computer program in our brains that says this is going to happen. Ultimately, we really don't have any choice in this. It's, it's all fate somehow. And we have these things that are programmed on us that, that are going to occur. And the reality, I think for almost every human being in the world, I know it is for me and almost everybody I've talked to, each one of us has had horribly evil thoughts. And we've had horribly wonderful thoughts. And we are the ones that chose what to act on and what not to act on. 
And I would never sit in front of anyone and say I didn't act on some of those evil thoughts. I acted on them. But I also acted on some of those wonderful thoughts, those things that were good, those thin things that were intrinsic. To say that we don't have a choice on how we act is crazy. The fact of the matter is we do. We do have that, and it has been wonderfully placed in us by our Savior to allow us to choose, do we wish to be with him for the rest of eternity? It is, it is that intrinsic. We have that choice. We have that loving way. And we are going to hear things that are evil from the evil one that says, you don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about your friends, your family, your loved ones. You don't have to worry about doing the right thing. It doesn't matter. All of it is just intrinsic. You can hear the evil one saying exactly that and not what the Lord says, which is follow me, follow my path. Why is it people want to believe that there is no evil? Why do we want to, why do we look so hard for an answer that says there is no evil? What's well, easy? It's easy, right? It's it. I I didn't make the mistake. It's not my op- fault, yeah. right? Yeah. It's it's simple. It's easy. I can blame someone else. I can do whatever I want, and whatever the consequences are, they're not my issue. Instead of, they are. We are responsible for every other person. We need to let them know who Christ is. That is what God wants us to do. We have that love and that opportunity and that responsibility to help the world know that God is good, that eternity will be good with him as opposed to eternity of evil with the evil one who, boy, he's active in my life. I can can feel it until he's there. And if you believe there's evil in the world and that that you're capable of doing evil and capable of doing good, as you say, then it imposes a responsibility on you. Of course. Each and every day with each and everything you do. And, you know, it's, it's been a, a, a teaching of the Catholic Church since, I don't know, forever, that a good practice is what's called an examination of conscience every night. You go, before you go to bed, you ask, what have I done today that was good? Or more importantly, what have I done today that was not so good? Where have I maybe hurt somebody? Where have I, you know, done something I shouldn't have done? And it's always good to recollect that. It helps you maybe not to do it the next time. But if you never have to go through that exercise, whether on a nightly basis or otherwise, boy, well, then it is a lot easier. It takes a whole lot of, you know, weight off your shoulders, but maybe not for the benefit of those around you. Um, So there are all these people out there with these different viewpoints, whether it's, you know, uh, sociological, criminological, philosophical, personal, you know, whether it's based on neuroscience. There's no evil. There is no evil. Then I came across uh, an article in the Rochester uh, Democrat and Chronicle from 2018 in the wake of yet another incident. I came across it because recently there was another shooting in nearby Buffalo, my hometown actually, and so we're confronted with this all the time, you know, these mass shootings. And in dealing with this, there was a writer um, in the Democrat in the Rochester newspaper who said this. Um, there is evil. A person who uses a high-powered rifle to slaughter 17 people in high school or 20 kindergartners or 12 people in a movie theater or 58 people at a country music concert is evil. He is not necessarily mentally ill. She, uh, before writing this, uh, consulted with Robert Weissman, who's professor of psychiatry at the University of Rochester. And he said there are a lot of people who are at risk for dangerous behavior, uh, 
that have no diagnosable serious mental illness. His work focuses in this area, actually, uh, the management of violence. He said, only 4% of criminal violence in the United States can be attributed to people with mental illness. For example, the guy who shot 12 people to death in a movie theater in Aurora, in Aurora Colorado, tried to plead guilty by reason of insanity. The jury said, no, no, no. Then there was this guy, uh, Dylan Roof, who stormed in a South Carolina church and shot nine African-Americans in a racist rage. He was also found mentally competent. Well, you know, so anyways, um, and then there's, for example, she, there's another expert in, the, in this area who said, uh, and I can give you his name and such, but the point is he said, mental health should not be seen as violence prevention. Um, and the article then ended by saying, you know, this, this reliance on mental health, mental health, mental health. You know, we got to try to see the warning signs. We got to have, you know, some red flag laws in place. And whenever we get idea that somebody might be prone to or ready to commit violence, we send up the red flag, we get them some mental health, you know, uh, advice and so forth. And this article says, no, you can't rely on that. This is the mental health is not the problem. If these people are not truly mentally ill, then why do they do what they do? Well, that's because the author of the piece said, excuse me, there is evil. So her answer was gun control. Let's get rid of all the guns. Of course, if you get rid of all the guns, well, then you got a problem. What about, I don't know, explosives? The guy who did Oklahoma City used, what was it, gasoline and fertilizer? We're going to ban gasoline and fertilizer? Um, what about poisonous gases? Could, you, could somehow somebody get access, you know, to poisonous gases? What about anthrax? There was, you know, that incident a couple of years ago where people were sending around this white powder. Everybody got scared when you opened up a letter that had, you know, if you're in Washington, D.C. and the government anyways, and you open up a letter and it had white powder in it, you're afraid somebody's sending you a nice little present of anthrax. There are lots of ways to kill people. How about, I don't know, maybe we focus on not so much the tool that somebody uses, but the tools that that person has to deal with themselves. How do we help the person? How do we help somebody decide not to do this? Um, I don't know. Maybe this whole good and evil thing. I mean, maybe just tell people, you know what? It's good to be good and it's bad to be evil. Can we do that? But we don't do that. I don't hear, you know, in the, in the wake of Uvalde, the wake of the Buffalo shooting, or any of these shootings, a large outcry that these people are just bad people, that this is evil, that this is rotten. I don't hear that. And the few voices that you do hear, you know, proclaiming that there's evil, then get shouted down by other people, like the, these writers, these philosophers, these professors that we've been quoting. But there is evil. I mean, we started out with this program with the idea, so where's the truth? So where is the truth? Is there evil? Is there even good? Because if we get rid of evil, don't we also get rid of, the, get rid of good? Um, you know, and so what's the answer to this? Is the answer mental health and gun control? Or is the answer trying to tell people that there is a truth, that there is evil, that you can be good, no matter what you may have already done in your life, you can still be good. Is that 
not an answer that goes more to the heart of the matter. Why are we so afraid to tell people they need to be good? They need to be pleasing to God. Why are we so afraid to tell people that? Well, I think most of us, Ray, don't want to be told by anyone, anything, what to do, what to say, how to think. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, by the way, I, I think it's a wonderful independence. It's a great thing that God has given us is this desire for independence, desire to do something that, uh, that is important to us, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. But the fact of the matter is there is a real truth. You've mentioned that a couple times, and it comes from God. And God allows us to choose his truth or to choose another, to go a different direction, to not follow what it is that he's saying. And that is just our opportunity, our chance. And the fact of the matter is the church is out telling everyone every day, Sundays included, what that truth is. And instead of shunning that, be nice to listen to it. I, I mean, if you think of the words of our, our, our Savior as he was talking to the woman caught in adultery, as everyone else left, he didn't chastise her. He didn't tell her anything except go forth and don't sin again. That's his desire. That's his love for us to go forth and not sin, to follow his direction. And instead of this great desire that's there, to do evil, to do what we want, to put ourselves more important than our neighbor or our God. And that's tough. It's a tough thing. That is a, that is a tough thing. But you're right. We do need to hear more of that, need to hear more of that all the time. And more people have to be willing to open themselves up to hear those types of things. Um, so there's a, um, you know, so we, we laid out this, we laid out this, this, this floor plan of, of this analysis of, of good and evil and the problems with Uvalde and why it is. And as I say, most of the normal culture says, you know, there is no evil. We either need mental health. We need to have gun control. Those are always the answers. You don't hear a lot of people saying, like you want, like you're suggesting about, go to church more. Listen, listen to these messages more. Don't hear that. Well, Father Michael Orsi uh, thinks that's exactly what we ought to do. He says in the wake of Uvalde that we always ask the same questions. And we always propose the same solutions. We always ask, why does this terrible thing happen? And we need more mental health we, you know, treatment. We need more gun control. He said, but all of this never quite gets to the heart of the matter. Evil. Period. That's what he says. We never get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter to Father Morrissey is evil. He quoted Bishop Sheen, who said, the devil knows he is never so strong as when men believe that he does not exist. Father Orsi begins to quote figures. You're talking about church attendance, Bob. In the 1950s, regular church attendance among young adults was 70%. Now, it's half of that. Um, you know, he, he then says, you know, we, that we need to get to, the problem isn't guns, he says. It's godlessness. That's it. In his view, that will get to the heart of the matter. And he quotes also John Adams, one of our founding fathers, who said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. John Adams, our Constitution, our government, is designed for a religious people. When, do you, when did you think, you know, when did you hear that last? Um, 
you know, Father Orsi says, hey, you know, we could try to do this with these answers that are being proposed. We should we could try to deal with our problems with mental health control. But if we do it without God, he said, trust me, it won't work. That was when, his, yeah. When Uvalde was having just occurred, I heard many people um, come out and say, we are praying for the families. We are praying for the people there. We are praying for the individual, for his soul that did all of this. And there was another whole contingent of people that was tough to listen to and said, we don't care anymore about your prayers. We don't care that you want to pray. Now, that's not only evil in Uvalde, but then you have evil in public figures who are saying, I don't care about the prayers. That is the answer. We do have to feel that in our soul. We have to to feel that love for those that are injured and feel for them and help in whatever way we can. We don't want to not do that. And that, to me, was very evil. We're not only shunning um, these this, this thing that happened, we're shunning anyone who wants to think that God has anything to do with this and that it is a need for God. Let's shut that down right away by saying we don't care about your prayers. We don't care about what you're, what you're feeling, what you're thinking. It, it was evil on top of evil. It was evil squared from, from an engineering yeah, standpoint. There are people that are uncomfortable with religious people, and that's why there can't be any evil, because if you say there's evil, it's because you're trying to foist some religious kind of thinking on us, and, uh, and we don't want it. And so, yeah, there are people that are uncomfortable with that. That's, that's the world that we're faced with today, which gets us back to the question we asked before. Is there a truth? Is there good and is there evil? And there is a good, and the good is God. The good is Christ. And if there's good and evil, doesn't that get down to the question, is there the devil and is there Christ? And we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, a reading from St. Paul. St. Paul had something to say about this, this question of evil as well. He said, I urge you to watch out for those who create dissensions and obstacles in opposition to the teaching that you learned. Such people, by fair and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the innocent. I want you to be wise as to what is good and simple as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will quickly crush Satan under your feet. It's an interesting little turn of phrase. I want you to be wise as to what is good and simple as to what is evil. Wise as to what... You know, he wants you to spend time, use your powers of reasons, not just emotions and feeling, but use reason. There's a reason why the church has always thought that faith and reason go together and that we should, you know, discern. Uh, we spend a, lot of t- spend a lot of time discerning what God wants us to do. Try to be wise. Try to, try to get through these, this fair and flattering speech that people can use to deceive you. We hear these good things. Look, hey, you know, if you want to be free, then we have to be free to choose what we want. We've got to have a shared shared moral community, and we've got to sympathize with terrorists. And, you know, really, then there is no, there is no, there really is no evil. It's just a, a just a, a, an empathy circuit that isn't as well de- developed as in other people. I mean, these things sound nice, they sound favorable, they, 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 they sound kind, and they might be endearing to us. But they deceive us. 
And that's what Paul was warning against. Anything that takes you away from the teaching that he was proclaiming, which is simply the teaching that he received, um, anything that takes you away from that is to be guarded against. But he wanted you to be simple as to what is evil. Be simple. Don't hem and haw about it. Stay away from it. Just don't go along with it. Uh, be like children when it comes to Children have a miraculous ability, a wondrous ability to decipher through things. And they can tell when something doesn't make sense. We, on the, you know, very quickly, something this doesn't make sense. We, on the other hand, we get so educated and enlightened that we spin our thinking around to the point where we end up in places that, you know, just unimaginable from where we started. Uh, like that professor that I was, I was quoting earlier, where on the one hand he's saying, you know, hey, these Christians are, are full of overconfidence. At the same time, he's then saying, well, you know, uh, we, you know, that these some people are just simply beyond all, all hope. I mean, how does he get to proclaim that? But anyway, um, that's what St. Paul told us. Beware of evil. It's there. And beware of the speech that tells you that it's not. So that's his advice to us. Now, and he uh, he had some some real experience with that too, right? He did, his he did. his former life before he became and that thorn in his side that stuck with him even after. Yeah, yeah. he yeah. he was he had that, and he spoke from experience and and understood. He also spoke from the wonder of God. He was right with it. There's yep. half of me wants to do good, and half of me wants right. to do evil. He talked right. about that. Oh, you bet. The thorn in my side, and uh, he. He, he spent a lot of time understanding that and helping people understand that he had that in him. Every one of us has that in him. Absolutely the case. And uh, so I can't help but, uh, but think that as we're going through this discussion, is it just a coincidence that tomorrow is Corpus Christi Sunday? What about coincidences? Do they mean anything? And if Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, that's Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. We celebrate that on Corpus Christi Sunday. We believe that he is there, body, soul, uh, I mean, divinity. excuse me, body, yeah. Yeah, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. Is that true? Is that a truth? We say that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We say that Christ is truth itself. What if I could tell you that from a single episode with the Eucharist. You could not only know um, a truth that operated in that particular episode, but it was a truth that is all the truth that you need for your entire life. If Christ, You know, it's, it's funny. You have the laws of the universe, right? You've got gravity. You've got various laws of physics. Bob, you could speak to this much better than I could. Newton, Newton put a lot of them out. They're pretty good stuff. Um, but uh, laws of physics, laws of you know the astro astronomical universe, what's amazing about them is there are laws, there are truths, if you will, that apply constantly. They apply throughout the entire universe. And you take, you take an, an atom on, on the subatomic level, there are certain rules that apply there as well. And in all of physics, those rules don't change. You can take something that operates in an atom and from that, expand out. You know, you can take a law that find operates between our planet, you know, where we've got, 
you know, gravitational forces operating between us and the moon and us and the sun. And you can find that same law applying throughout the entire universe. From little snapshots of a much larger whole, if you can see the truth in it, whether it's gravity or anything else, you can see a truth that applies on a much wider level. Because why? Because there are such things as truths. And if the Catholic Church is right that the body of Christ is, um, you know, that the, that the host, uh, the consecrated host is his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Well, and if Christ, ex and if, so then Christ is really present when he's there in the Eucharist. And if he is truth itself, then we ought to find from what little nuggets of understanding we can apply to a particular episode of somebody's involvement with the Eucharist. We can apply truths that might extend outwards farther and farther and farther, even to you and to me. Let's explore. There's a guy named Michael Forrest. He was a professional uh, keyboardist. And one day, he was a raised Baptist, recent convert to Catholicism. When he was uh, putting his kids in a car, uh, they were going uh, on their way to church, and uh, his wife accidentally slammed the car door in his hand. Now, if you're a professional penis, that's not a good thing. Um, it took some doing, but he finally was able to muster enough uh, strength to at least uh, free himself and scream. At, at first, he couldn't even scream to his wife for help. He was in such excruciating pain. Got his hand free. When he took his hand out, his fingers were flattened in several places, um, swollen twice the normal size. There was blood that was exuding out from under the skin. His hand was a mess. Uh, they quickly decide, well, we're going to uh, drop the uh, the kids off at his brother and sister-in-law's house, and then they're going to head to the hospital. But then he felt a compulsion to go into the house to pray. So he announces this to his wife. She thinks it's nuts, but okay. She, you know, she's going to humor him. They go into the house to pray. So then she says, okay, now can we go? And he says, you know, we need to go to Mass. <laughs> and so they take the children over to the brother and sister-in-law's house. And he and his wife go to Mass to the strenuous objections of both his wife and his brother and sister-in-law. They all thought he was nuts, but he wanted to go to Mass. Well, at the same time, he's feeling this urge to go to Mass. There's a priest who's feeling an urge to give a really good homily that day. And when Michael Forrest arrives at the church and he hears this homily, he notices something very special. See, he was this convert from the Baptist faith, and, the one, and he believed so many things that the Catholic Church taught. But the one thing he had a real problem with was this whole body, blood, soul, and divinity thing. Could it really be Christ? He was struggling with that. And he had actually been praying that, some, that he would be given some answer that would help him believe this more. And he had been praying this uh, leading up to this particular day. And, you know, and then this priest just happened to get this urge that he had to make this good homily on this particular Sunday. And so on this particular Sunday, he gave a homily about the Eucharist and how it was so true and so real. And Michael thought to himself, wow, this is just what I was kind of struggling with. Um, it was really good. I did come to church this day. Okay, well, since uh, this had all happened to them, uh, they were rather late getting to Mass. And so they ended up sitting in the last pew of the church. So because they were in the last pew of the church, they were the last people to go up to communion. So they're going up to communion, and as he's getting up there, he hears a voice, and it tells him what this voice tells him one word. Voice tells him to kneel. 
He thought, well, maybe I imagined that. And then the voice said again, kneel. Well, he wasn't sure if he could. So he asked the priest, is it okay? And the priest tells him, yeah, it's okay. So he does. So he goes back to his pew. And at this point, um, he had his, high, his hand wrapped in paper towels and this and that. And it was a mess. So his wife was unwrapping it. So she was going to put on some new tissues and whatnot. Um, and uh, she said to him, Michael, look at your hand. You know, if you're bleeding like under your, your skin, um, they'd wiped off the blood that, you know, had oozed out of the skin. But there's a lot of internal bleeding going on. And of course, you know, there are parts of your, your body then that turn purple and this and that. And she said, look at your hand. These purple areas were vanishing. The blood was actually uh, receding. The swelling was also diminishing. It went away. The pain that he was feeling in his hand went away. Everything returned to normal. He said that as he was walking back from communion, he felt a strange warmth. Couldn't describe it, couldn't understand it, but he felt a warmth. They go up to the priest after the Mass, and they tell him what had happened. He says, well, you know what day this is. And he says, well, yeah, it's Sunday. He says, no, 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 no. This is Corpus Christi Sunday. This is the day we celebrate the truth, the reality of the real presence of Christ. Just then, a couple of women came up and said, young man, we just want to tell you. We want to thank you. He said, for what? They said, for kneeling. You showed such reverence to the Eucharist, and we just wanted to tell you thank you. The priest said, Michael, you understand what's happening here? This wasn't just for you. This was, this was partially for you, but it was for others as well. This miracle was not just for you. And, of course, with Christ, it was the same thing. Like before, you know, Lazarus, before he healed Hazard, Lazarus, when he was going to perform that great miracle, it wasn't just for Lazarus. He prayed verbally. Uh, in public, saying, God, I know that you hear me. I know that you always hear me, but I'm doing this for the people gathered here. Miracles are not just for the recipient. A lot of times, miracles are to help people around the recipient to believe in the truth. Well, okay. So now maybe we're thinking, wow, big miracle here, you know, because this guy received communion and, you know, he's believing more because he, he heard this, this great homily. What a coincidence. What a coincidence this would happen on Corpus Christi Sunday. What a coincidence that, you know, the, uh, the priest uh, would have this feeling that he had to give a great homily. Well, it's not just a coincidence. In this story, we can find a coincidence, we can find a commandment, and we can find a consolation. This was not just a coincidence. So if it's not a coincidence, then what is it? There's a plan. There's a plan. There's a reason why this all happened. Um, it happened to help Michael believe in the Eucharist. It happened to help other people by his reverence to the Eucharist. It helped maybe strengthen the faith of the priest. It I mean, this wasn't just a coincidence. There was a plan here. Okay. Well, then there was also this commandment. The commandment was to kneel. And what did Michael do? He obeyed the commandment. He did what was commanded by a higher 
authority. He didn't decide, hey, subjectively, me, myself, and I think maybe this is not a good idea. He did what he was told. He, come, he obeyed um, this voice. Well, then what happened? Well, he received a consolation. He received a great gift. His hand was instantly healed. So what do we have? We have a coincidence, we have a commandment, and we have a consolation. You know, we said that Christ was there. He was present at that moment in the church when communion was being distributed. And Christ is the truth. Truth. He is truth itself. He is all truth, all wrapped up into him. He is truth. And what can we learn from this little episode? From the co coincidence, we know there's a plan. From the commandment, we know that there's a higher authority, a law to guide us, if you will. And we learn that if we obey it, maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll receive a consolation. And that is all truth. What's the biggest question any of us will ever face? What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Well, you're here because God created you, and God wants you to live in accordance with his will. And if you do, you will get the ultimate consolation. You will get eternal life. There is a reality, there is a truth that was discernible from this small event that happened in a small span of time to a limited number of people. And from that small circle of people and circumstances, we can discern the truth that gives us the answer to what to do with our life. It's the same answer that has been there for everybody as long as the church has been around. Um, God has a plan. And if we obey his commandments and obey his plan, we will see, receive eternal salvation, the ultimate consolation. Why would we not expect anything but ultimate truth to be discernible from a time when Christ, truth, truth himself, was really present? So on this feast, this coming feast of Corpus Christi Sunday, we offer this to you as a suggestion, as, uh, as a truism that, I don't know, to whatever extent you believe in the reality of the Eucharist, but if there's any small smattering of doubt, believe more. And, and we can apply this outward from our own internal hearts. Because if Christ is there, if there's the consolations that are there, there's goodness. And if there's goodness, there's also evil. What if we don't obey the commandments? What if we do? Really, that's what all evil is. Right? You're doing what the devil wants instead of what God wants. Um, if we don't, then maybe we won't receive that ultimate consolation. There is a higher moral law. We have the free will to decide whether we're going to obey it or not, but we can't change the fact that there is a law. Just like Michael couldn't change the fact that he was told to kneel. Somebody, Michael didn't tell himself to kneel. Somebody else told him to kneel. 
Um, and how can we know that? Well, I don't know. Hands just don't just normally just sort of like repair themselves in a matter of seconds. I mean, there were witnesses to that. You know, a lot of times people have special occurrences that, that, that happen to them. Uh, but there are no witnesses. There's no way to say for sure. There are witnesses to this one. How does this just simply happen? There is a truth. The problem in our world the ripple effects from this one little incident, by the way, this happened not too long ago. It was 1996 in Ohio that this happened to Michael Forrest. The truth that applies there at that time applies to us as well. The problem with Uvalde, Texas, is not guns. It's not an abundance of guns. An abundance of, I mean, too many guns in the hands of the wrong people, not a good thing. If people are truly suffering from mental health issues, not a good thing. If people are suffering from godlessness, Believe me, that's also not a good thing. Absolutely, Ray. The, um, the fact of the matter is, this Sunday we have that wonderful opportunity to truly understand that the Eucharist is not a piece of bread and it's not a cup of wine. The Eucharist is the true body of Christ. And if you think that, if you understand that, if you understand that we are receiving Christ's body and blood, as he said throughout his life, to receive me, to receive my body and blood, then we can go places that we've never thought of before. Miracles can happen. Good things can occur. We can receive what it is that God is truly telling us. I think we have trouble with that. We, we see this thing happen, and we think, no, there's no miracle. The, the bread hasn't changed at all. It's still wine. There's still alcohol in it. it. It hasn't moved. Yet the reality is that is Christ. The priest invokes Christ to come into the body and blood of, of Christ and is there and is present and is miraculous. And it's hard for us to understand that, but it's not impossible. We truly need to, to think and listen and pray. And speaking of praying, uh, it's time to close this program again and time uh, once again, Bob, for you to help us with a closing prayer. And I can't imagine uh, what you're going to be helping us to pray about today. Perhaps you could solve that riddle for me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we believe. We ask that we could truly understand on this Sunday that it is the true body and blood of you, Lord, who is with us in the sacrament. We ask that we can have that belief. We can look upon the bread and wine, and the transformation, and know that it is truly you that is there, truly you that is present, and through you, all good things will occur. Allow us to have that love, that belief, that devotion to know that you are there and that you are good and you desire us to be good and to follow you. Allow us to truly do that as we receive the Eucharist and the blood on this Corpus Christi Sunday. We pray all this through the wonderful and glorious name of your Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, Son and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.